why I have a faith in uh, diplomacy is that it will try and rectify and slow down this impact that's happening at the moment, but also find solutions so that humans can survive. Hello and welcome to 100 Climate Conversations. I'd like to acknowledge that we're meeting on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and future. Today is number 87 of 100 Conversations happening here every Friday. The series presents 100 visionary Australians who are taking positive action to respond to the most critical issue of our time, climate change. We're recording live today in the boiler hall of the Powerhouse Museum. Before it was home to the museum, it was the Ultimo power station. Built in 1899, it supplied coal-powered electricity to Sydney's tram system right up until the 1960s. So it's fitting that in this powerhouse museum, we shift our focus forward to the solutions to the climate crisis. My name is Marion Wilkinson, and over the years, I've written and broadcast many stories about climate change. But when I was researching my book, The Carbon Club, I learned for the first time about the big role that small island states played in bringing about the ambitious Global Climate Treaty in Paris. George Carter is a director of the Australian National University Pacific Institute and a research fellow with its Department of Pacific Affairs, where he teaches international diplomacy. For over a decade, George has been talking to and working with Pacific Island climate leaders about the ways that small, vulnerable countries can influence the big powers at climate negotiations. George's work and his teachings are informed by his Pacific Island background. He holds the chiefly title of Sala in Samoa, and he's proud of his Samoan, Tuvalu, Kiribati, Chinese and British ancestry. So welcome, Dr. George Carter. I just wanted to ask you first, do you think being raised in the Pacific sharpened your anxiety about climate change? Yeah. I'd like to recognize and also pay respect to uh, indigenous uh, First Nations owners of this land. There are many few memories that you have as a child for me, one of those memories that stick out when I was five years old, six years old, was huddling under a tarpaulin during the middle of a cyclone. And this was known as Cyclone Ofa in 1990. Now, I was, what I remember was huddled under a tarpaulin with a roof ripped off. And there were about 20 mothers and children of us uh, huddled under the space. And that, then there was a time there was just no uh, wind, no no rain, and we quickly re-evacuated and uh, put a hole in the middle of a cement tank. It was a cement tank, sort of sheltered like this, and we huddled in there, but that was the time of the eye of the cyclone. We huddled in there, and then the cyclone 
came back and we survived for those two, three days. That was in 1990. Again in 1991, another cyclone, Cyclone Bell, came through our islands and our family had to face the reality that we've lost everything. We've lost uh, our plantations, we lost our trading depot, which we had, and that we had to move to Apia, the capital city. And I grew up there. I've come to realize that was trauma. For someone at five or six years old to remember that, that was a tra traumatic experience of having to face two cyclones. I've also come to realize that these are impacts of climate change, this extreme and frequent weather events. Never before we've had in Samoa two cyclones, one after the other. You recall Vanuatu recently had a cyclone, two cyclones in one day, plus an earthquake. This is the reality uh, of, what, uh, of what's happening in the Pacific. And that has played into what I've come to take on board as my research focus. I value, pay respect, but also really acknowledge the agency of Pacific states in international politics and how they advocate for the challenges, but also the opportunities and resilience that they have in their development uh, in international spaces. And one of this is through the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, how they articulate their needs, but also the challenges, but also their resilience uh, in climate change. And that upbringing of that trauma of interest in these extreme events, the interest in international politics, really in, has informed the way that um, uh, I work and research. Well, you arrived in Canberra in 2012. You arrived as a postgrad student at the Australian National University with one suitcase, I think. You were put in a college called Toad Hall. It sounds awful, but you loved it. What was so good about Toad Hall and coming to the ANU? Mm. I came to ANU to study masters in international relations and a master's in diplomacy. And I've come now with this idea of we're doing something great in the world and the world has a lot to learn from the Pacific. I came with that idea and I wanted to come to Australia because it had the top university that had a diplomacy, but also a Pacific classes, courses. I got there, there was nothing. There was, uh, at that time, we didn't have a, a professor teaching Pacific studies. We've already had one week that focused on the Pacific. It was a time when there was much more attention on China and Indonesia, okay. But I was so very privileged to stay in Toad Hall it's an international hall, an international postgraduate hall with over 52 nationalities. The majority of the students are over the age of 25, but some of them are former presidents, former CEOs of the Asia Pacific, coming here on Australian Award Scholarship. So I looked at it in terms of learning from all these leaders. It was like a mini United Nations. That's what Toad Hall is and continues on today. And next year, we'll celebrate 50 years. There were also opportunity to lead the community. And what we learned from there is this compassionate learning about global leadership, learning from each other. And uh, that on top of sort of, you know, not being able to have Pacific in my uh, studies, we were able to infuse that in our living, you know, learning about values. And there are many values that Australia shares with the Pacific and global community. and that. Something is very important to me, and I've learned that 
that also informed my research. Because if I was stuck uh, in New York, I would call one of my friends from Toad Hall. Do you have someone here that can help me because I can't navigate? It was the same when we went to Paris. A couple of our old students from uh, France were there, but even students from Ghana who were also at Toad Hall, we were there. When I was in the middle of, because uh, at that time I was looking after the Prime Minister from Samoa, I was in the same room where only four people from every country in the world, Barack Obama and his three top attendees. It's a holding room for leaders. And I was there to look after the Samoan PM because as a PhD student at that time, the ambassador said to me, look after the PM. This is your, you know, there's only a few Samoans that go to these meetings. So that was an honor. But in that same room, there was another Toad Hall student. Uh, and she was the interpreter for uh, the president of Indonesia. It's amazing, you know. Um, and we were like, well, how did you get here? Where did you come from? It's like, oh, I'm looking after the PM because, uh, you know, uh, short staff, they ask us to come through. Uh, but those are sort of unique connections also of this place told hall, but into the work that we do. That is fantastic. Well, at ANU, you started on a very deep dive into the role of small island states in the UN negotiations, and you've written some fascinating papers about this. I wanted to ask you about the origins of those states' influence, and you talk about a critical meeting way back in the late 1980s in the Maldives. Tell us about that beginning. Mm. So as I said, in ANU, there was lack of content on the Pacific. But engaging in the research, I've come to found out there's this little history here of international negotiations that not many people knew about. And that turned me on is what happened in 1988 in Maldives is the birth of the Alliance of Small Island States. At that time was the first ever meeting of uh, leaders on the uh, focusing attention on the impact of sea level rise and global warming. Australia supported the Pacific countries, such as Kiribati, Tuvalu, Samoa, Fiji, to attend this meeting. This meeting in 1980 in the Maldives led to not only the creation of AOSIS, how small states can work together as a coalition, but the idea that climate change was very real and it was impacting. And from there, a global campaign started. These countries took this up with the Commonwealth of Nations who then took it up at the United Nations, which then led to um, an international negotiation committee to look at a treaty on climate change. Uh, and then by 1990 to 1992, the convention had established. But leading the way were these group of small island states uh, who had in 1988 come to Maldives and say, these sea level rise wrapping on our, you know, on our doorstep, um, which is eroding our coastal. This is something that we need to take to the world. So a lot of countries would say, oh, we are the ones who initiated the campaign on climate change. But in fact, it was these small island states at this meeting on Maldives. And now this regime has come to almost 40 years later. It's the only main global uh, mechanism or platform that brings in, is inclusive of all states, not just the G20 and its uh, top economies, but also the countries who are at the front line of these impacts to come together within, uh, you know, to discuss, but also find solutions on climate impacts. And I'm interested that you use that word, the front line. You talk about that quite a bit in your work. 
What does it actually mean mm. for states like Samoa, uh, Kiribati to be on the front line? Yeah. So at one end within international politics, it's a strategy in terms of framing a narrative that uh, states are vulnerable to these climate impacts. And that is a way of which they are able to set the agenda because they're giving special recognition of states with these vulnerabilities. But the reality is very real. Uh, as I said in Samoa, uh, that experience of traumatic experience of uh, cyclones year after year. And then every time I go home for Christmas, it's flooding. It's flooded. We are built on river deltas, a lot of these main big cities. And there's flooding every time, uh, you know, there's monsoon or um, uh, rains. You see it in uh, coastal erosion. Last week, we were in Tonga. And uh, we, you know, we were, came out and we were shown by uh, one of our friends that, oh, the building to the chiefs for uh, fishing was out in the water. That's no longer gone. Huh? That's what we say. That's the loss of not only uh, land, that's the loss of not only uh, productivity in terms of fishing for the village, but that's also loss of culture. They can't, they will not be able to practice that culture that's now lost. These are very real impacts. It's the same as in Tuvalu, coastal erosion with sea level rise, huh? um, especially uh, impacts on their water, huh? uh, with sea uh, water intrusion into their water tables, uh, droughts not being able to receive rainfall. In one year, uh, Marshall Islands had to fly in water because of droughts. Every time a plane comes in to bring in uh, guests or tourists, they bring in water as well. That's a reality that... Uh, uh, it's not just a narrative uh, for um, in uh, globally in international negotiations, but also very real on the ground. Well, I wanted to take you to those Paris negotiations you talked about before. You were still a PhD student then, but you did get yourself embedded in one of the negotiating teams. How did you pull that off? And why, at the time, was it so important for you to go to Paris? When I started on the project, I was very uh, adventurous. And it was an opportunity that I did not, need, I did not know there was be something that becomes so big. I wanted to study AOSIS. I wanted to study climate negotiations. And it just so happens the year of my field research was the Paris. So that was an opportunity that um, I feel right place, right time. But I used uh, my relationships, my identity as a Samoan Kiribati Tuvalu. So I was able to attend many of these meetings leading up to the event as a Tuvalu uh, advisor with the government. I reached out to the government and said, here I am. I'd like to be of service to, but at the same time, for my research, uh, for the research uh, as part of Kiribati. And then uh, for Paris, I attended as part of the Samoan delegation. And of course, they say, well, we are short staff, and this is what happens with small uh, delegations. They reach out to everyone, NGOs, but even Samoan heritage to come and assist in delegation. And so my opportunity was, or the task I had was to look after the pre prime minister uh, in the meetings. And so that access, he took me into every meeting with leaders, uh, as well as with regional leaders, but also within the crux of the negotiations able to sort of take a nod, look at Barack Obama face to face, uh, you know. So these are opportunities that this um, uh, research took me in. But what it also was working with 
uh, leaders and negotiators from the Pacific to understand their perspectives and what they were pushing for. And some of these were uh, working with uh, Tony De Bruyne uh, from Marshall Islands. I observed in that time how this country of uh, Marshall Islands went over the divide of the global north and global south. These are big two separate negotiation uh, firewalls. But he went over the line and reached out to the European Union, reached out to United States, reached out to, and for a whole year leading up to Paris, had secret negotiations or uh, to try and form a, a, a partnership. And so by the time they came to Paris, there was the High Ambition Coalition that included African nations, Pacific nations, and the Global North to try and uh, find a compromise on the global target of 1.5. The Pacific were pushing for 1.5, other countries were saying three or four because of the economic um, uh, outlook. But they managed to find wording that will uh, acknowledge and try to reach 1.5. That was an extraordinary achievement. I think everyone thinks now that that moment in Paris was probably one of the turning points of the whole history of climate negotiations. When you come down to it, what do you think it was about those Pacific Island delegations, particularly Tony de Broom, the foreign minister of that very small state, what do you think was so special that they brought to those negotiations that had such a big impact? Mm. Leading up to negotiations, so the research not only explore, look, explored and observed what happened during negotiations, but before the leader. What had happened throughout the Pacific was a certain urgency. Um, there was more calls for countries to work together, to push together, to have a united, uh, coherent global message. Before, people just, countries would just arrive at climate negotiations and at the spot try and come with uh, a negotiating position. But throughout that year, uh, leaders from the Pacific like Enelia Soponga, Tony de Broom, as well as um, partners, through a series of meetings in the Pacific, created their own position, their global collective diplomacy, a voice of the Pacific. That's what we sort of now know it. Uh, they were political champions in pulling for what that action is. And two main key issues were of importance, the global temperature goal on 1.5 and the push to acknowledge loss and damage. Those were key two firms beyond, as well as mitigation, adaptation, climate finance. But these were two new goals which the Pacific had pushed for. By the time they came to Paris, you had Tony de Broom working with other leaders and they created high ambition coalition. On the other flip side, Enele uh, Sopoanga of Tuvalu was pushing the United States on the loss and damage. What uh, Tuvalu had uh, achieved that by October, of that year leading up to December, they had garnered G77, 138 countries to support loss and damage. And can you explain for people what loss and damage is? I think a lot of them aren't really uh, aware of that concept even today. Yeah. So in adaptation, we say that when there is a climate impact, societies, communities, and nations can build back. We will give them resources of finance capacity and they're able to respond back. A cyclone hits through a grant or a loan or assistance, they were able to rebuild their homes and build back and 
Uh, that's called uh, adaptation, being resilient to the change, to the impact. Loss and damage is when you cannot build back. You've lost it. Sea level rise will take over that part of land that you live on. You cannot live on that land. You've lost not only your opportunities to live in it, to gain sustenance in terms of growing food, that's economic and non-economic. You've lost your cultural heritage, your ancestry, your burial grounds, the way that you used to live and practice. Huh? So that's the non-economic. And that's what loss and damage is, is acknowledging that there's going to be a time in our societies where we cannot build back because of the impacts. Huh? It's not only in the Pacific. It's here in Sydney. It's in Addis Ababa. It's in Florida. There will be time that sea level rise or some form of climate impact will destroy some part of your land or society, and you'll not be able to practice that. And for countries like Tuvalu and Kiribati, where land is so limited, and sea level rise uh, taking over this land, um, this is a very much part of that loss and damage. The other amazing achievement of the Paris Agreement was to commission probably one of the most important scientific reports ever done for the United Nations, and that was the IPCC report on the impact of warming at 1.5 degrees compared to, say, 2 degrees or 3 degrees. How important was that report, that 1.5 degree report, for the small island states who were trying to raise the issues that you've just talked about, this loss and damage issue? Great rebuttal that a country can do in terms of climate change negotiations is to say 1.5, you need a scientific report. What's your evidence? We can't just give a temperature, long-term temperature goal and not have a scientific evidence. And that's very much pushed by the Arab group. Mm. What's the evidence that there is 1.5 is the threshold? And so, Part of the negotiations were countries from the Pacific pushing for then, okay, let's have a global um, uh, report that pushes for this. And they wanted, an, an even more so, an urgent report because countries can say, oh, let's have this report in the next five, 10 years. That's just kicking down the, the sort of can down line, delaying tactics. That's what happens in this negotiation. But Pacific always pushes for urgent, and we need the, if you need the report, we need the report now. And you see that this is one of the first ever first uh, fast IPCC reports in terms of it came out in 2018. Uh, that solidified the evidence that yes, 1.5 is a threshold where you'll start to see um, if we reach 1.5, there will be some societies in the world that will not be able to build back uh, through adaptation. And this was a sort of evidence in terms of low coral atoll nations in the Pacific and in Indian Ocean, that these communities will not be able, will have uh, areas or um, parts of their society lost. By the time of the Glasgow UN climate negotiations in 2021, you were no longer just an observer, but an active participant in the talks as part of the Pacific Regional Environment Programme. You supported the case of the small island states in the Pacific who are seeking compensation for loss and damage. Were the big powers more willing to listen to those arguments in Glasgow? Glasgow was a very important year. Um, remember, this is in the middle of uh, COVID. 
And at the same time, there was supposed to have the meeting the year before, but now sort of a two-year period. And this is the UK's leadership uh, in terms of loss and damage. Now, what had happened was uh, the Pacific countries had pushed loss and damage as a key um, area. Uh, and one of those was to have addressing in terms of a loss and damage fund. Uh, however, this was not achieved in that year because the attention of, uh, at that time was on the Paris rule book, uh, more on carbon markets and carbon, uh, what the uh, sort of just the transition would look like. That was, became the main focus. However, states were pushing from the Pacific, were saying, no, we need to address loss and damage. Yes, we now see that it's acknowledged in the Paris Agreement. The science says that it is, but we now need to put up some form of mechanism into, in, uh, in, in Glasgow. However, this was not achieved uh, uh, in terms of countries saying, please, let's push that off to next year and we focus on carbon, carbon markets. And then we came last year. And that's where the Pacific now in line with the African group, the other G77, 138. This is the year to push all states to have this from full attention. And you are on your way to mm. the next climate talks in a very short time. And the Samoan Prime Minister is actually in the chair at the moment of the Alliance of Small Island States. I know you've been working very hard, George, in the Pacific um, in recent times on this issue. How do you think it's going? Do you think uh, that this year, 2023, will be the time when the Pacific push on this issue of loss and damage will, will really be heard. Yes. So last year, when uh, by the time uh, COP27 had come through, talks to have a loss and damage fund were achieved. So that's what was achieved last year. This year, EOSIS, under the leadership of Samoa and Samoa's PM, are pushing for that this fund gets activated next year, right? not like what happened with the Global Climate Fund. It had almost a 10 years from when it was decided to have a fund to when it operationalized, 10 years of negotiations. So the big push that Samoa with AOSIS are, uh, are going for this year, we don't want the 10 years. They want one year talks and now and then elevated. So that will be the, the big push from, from the Pacific. But it's very important this year with what's known as the Global Stock Team. It's been three years since the world had pledged and also put action on climate change, activating the Paris Agreement. This year, we will look and see whether, what have we achieved in the last three years? And it's gonna be a lot of rubbish because we haven't achieved much. All the pledges that, that that's what we all already know. It's, it's, a, <laughs> it's not, we don't have to wait for the final report to come out, it's a given. We have not achieved the $100 billion uh, in terms that have been pledged. We haven't activated the pledges we still see the increase in greenhouse gas emissions. The big push for this year in global stock take is the new political will and uh, that will come through uh, more urgency. And that's where countries like the Pacific, in fact, Australia will also be, that's part of the message will be for the global communities to do more in our work, uh, not only in activating loss and damage fund, but also in climate finance, in terms of adaptation. What's also coming from the Pacific is it really needs to trickle down to the local community for those who are really being impacted. Because at the moment, a lot of it is stuck within uh, international organizations. A lot of the assistance is stuck within national systems. 
And those who are at the forefront or the front line are not seeing where these finances are to support them, but also they're not being able to participate in these global forums. Uh, I sense uh, your sense of frustration, and I'm sure this is often seen in the Pacific from uh, the people in the Pacific about what's happening. And when the recent IPCC report came down, the major scientific report this year on climate change, you said in an interview, I thought some words that were very confronting, and those words were, the more we know, the worse it looks. From your perspective, what do you think the science is telling us now for the Pacific region? Yeah. It's not only the science. Uh, the words of the science report, it's catastrophic. Uh, in the trends and the way that we live at the moment, it's going to be catastrophic for countries like the Pacific. The impacts will be much more severe. It will be hotter days. Uh, it will be much more frequent um, uh, disasters, natural disasters in terms of flooding, uh, impacts on water and food insecurity. Uh, it's going to be worse. It's not, we're not going to be living in a world that the climate's going to get better and better. No, it's not. It's going to get worse and worse. It means that societies and countries in the Pacific have to face realities. Huh? They're going to have to import food, more food that's not grown within uh, even water. Uh, in terms of fish, uh, which has become a big livelihood, but also an economic base for a lot of countries, it's going to move out into the West, into international waters. That means we'll be seeing fish wars, huh? fish, uh, fishing vessels out there because fighting over these fishing resources. It also means displacement migration. Already communities in the Pacific are constantly uh, being displaced. Every time there's a, a cyclone or some form of disaster, they move temporarily to their families or other parts of the country only to come back and rebuild. But we will be seeing a permanent displacement in the coming years. Where do they go? Do they go to other islands in the Pacific or do they come to Australia and New Zealand? These are the questions that are uh, currently leaders and uh, policy makers and even academia is now uh, trying to uh, take on in terms of having that dialogue. What do we do when it comes to those cases of uh, permanent displacement uh, and permanent migration? And yes, I wanted to ask you about that because you raised a very interesting concept here. You say that what you want when this happens is migration with dignity, not to look at people just as climate refugees. What do you actually mean by that? What will migration with dignity mean in this circumstance? When we speak about climate migration with uh, dignity is that people, not necessarily mass population, but when people are migrated because of climate impacts, that they find their community in their new homes. And so research, like uh, some of our colleagues are working on, is that if they are migrating to Australia, when they migrate to Australia, there's a community here waiting where they have their churches, where they have their cultural uh, communities here waiting for them, that their language will be accepted uh, as part of uh, communities here. They are able to practice some of you know, their um, cultural celebrations here in Australia, uh, where they are not seen as uh, unskilled laborers, 
but they're seen as every other citizens. But acknowledging that they've also are people from uh, countries or communities that are now lost some of these. Uh, that's part of what uh, climate migration dignity, not just come here, here are the social services, please tick a box, uh, choose a language, learn English, you know. Migration with dignity is when uh, people who will be traumatized, the fact that they cannot go back to their ancestral lands, but when they do move to countries like New Zealand or move to Samoa for that reason, uh, that they are welcomed and that they have their cultural, their social, uh, but also spiritual needs uh, are also uh, acknowledged in these spaces. Uh. Well, of course, the Pacific leaders will have seen firsthand in the past Australia can meet out very harsh treatment to refugees, uh, the incarcerations in PNG and in Nauru. Are you confident that an Australian government will be sympathetic to Pacific uh, islanders who are forced to leave their lands and perhaps come to Australia? I'm very optimistic with that. I think society does not try to repeat um, wrongdoings or atrocities. I think it, uh, it does try in a way to find healing in the way and move forward. And I think the past lessons of the way uh, political refugees or refugees have been treated has been learned. Uh, and I do hope that provides a new way of healing in terms of how it moves forward for future migration, especially climate migration, because it's not a political migration, it's a climate migration. And at the same time, it's not going to be a mass migration. It's gonna be a gradual migration of communities based on relationships. It's families moving with families. It's a slow migration. But we are also incorporating in that journey together of those who have leaving their home islands and also us accepting, if it is in here in Australia, that we work together slowly and that we also not just look at it as a economic transaction, right? Or just a movement, but it's also of people, culture, spirit, uh, and uh, trying to find new homes. That's where I find, where I see myself an optimistic, that I think our society here in Australia does look have learned that lessons in the past, and we will try not to do that in terms when it comes to climate migration. You point out, of course, and you mentioned um, here just before, that the Pacific Islanders are already having to adapt to climate change. There's been some recent reports that the Fijian government has already announced the planned relocation of some villages and a potential list of perhaps scores of villages that might have to be uh, relocated because of seawater inundation. Um, and do you think these sorts of relocations are going to happen around the Pacific? And how important will it be, especially for women in those families, in those villages, to be equally involved in dealing with that upheaval and trauma? Yeah. So, yes, relocation uh, has already started. In, in Fiji, I think they've identified just over 80. In Solomon Islands, a few number, I, I can't recall them. In Tonga, they've lost four islands. So displacement relocation has already happened. And government-led uh, support has happened, but it's very hard. Huh? Fiji, they've identified over 80 plus, but they could have only done four in the last five years. 
it takes a lot of um, learning, but also a lot of relationships for that to happen because you're requesting a community. You're trying to say the science is saying this, it will no longer be adaptable. But population is saying, no, we will not move. We will be here until that comes. But at the same time, the finance to need to build the infrastructure for these communities to land. And then there's navigating the politics of land uh, within communities. And then you're having to work with access because you're moving a, a community that's coastal, that's fisheries, into now uh, a land where they have to pick up new skills, become agriculturalists. Two very separate, different uh, sort of worlds or, or, or upbringings for, for, for communities to change. What I can say from the existing um, work and also research and reports from it, it's hard. Uh, it's, it's a very complex uh, issue. It's something that takes time for that to occur. And even same culture, same language, one government, it's not, uh, it's not a easy, huh? especially when you have to deal with culture and ancestral land. And this is the reality. And uh, women are very much uh, important uh, part of this, women and children. Because in some communities, women have the role of um, uh, providing the food. They are the ones who fish. Uh, and now you're asking women to create a new skill of growing yams uh, and to supply the household with this new extra skill. Uh, it's a whole different dimension as well. And so it's, uh, it's a very complicated space, even as countries are dealing this internally with uh, internal relocation, but it's even harder when it comes to international or moving out to other islands or moving to other countries. Uh, it's a uh, process that uh, countries are now realizing it's something that there must be not only national attention, but global attention. And you're seeing it in the current work where they're trying to lead, create frameworks around climate migration to take away, not use the word refugee, but migration, migration with dignity. They're trying to uh, put a, a definition, a concept to frame the discussion so that when it becomes a global discussion, which is now starting to happen, the Pacific has led the way in terms of this is but the way we want it to uh, be dealt. These are the ways we want people to look at this rather than just like, uh, here, here are the homes, here are the services that you could uh, take on board, but rather uh, they can also inform as the world will look, seriously look into these space, uh, that there's a solution or um, a voice from the Pacific in these discussions. That shows that it's a two-way street. Absolutely. Yeah. And this must be very interesting for you because of your position in Samoa, uh, you are you have the title of Sala there, so you are in a position of responsibility in your home life, in your Samoan life. Yet you juggle this with these big negotiations. Mm. Does that sometimes feel like you've got a a big world over there, but a reality that you're grounded in? Yeah. In Samoa, we have this proverb, "Olalalpulelautua." The way through leadership is service, but it also means uh, your role as leaders is to serve. And I've always taken that to heart because it's the way of how 
I ground my research, uh, the research contributions in terms of to policy, working with policymakers and leaders, and the way that I incorporate my teaching is to serve. But it's also very much grounded in the reality of is in Samoa, that, um, that I take on board the way that I serve my community uh, in ways of not only cultural obligations, but also financial obligations, uh, that it's our duties as um, Matais to find ways to make our communities better. It's the same way that we look at our research informing governments, universities, but also policymakers is to make uh, our situations better. But I also take on the uh, challenge of what the world can learn from my village in Samoa. Uh, and I use that in terms of the relationships, how we build our relationships, how we look at world in a multifaceted approach. That's not just one way, but you incorporate your culture. Uh, it's not just being uh, working in a political space is just about power. No, it's about responsibility. It's how you use culture, spirits, networks. Uh, you bring it all together and you try to inform uh, and encourage, uh, but also provide empowerment. Uh, that's through the work that we do in our communities. But it's the way that we also work with leaders. I just look at them as like every other people in my village. Uh, how do we empower their work? The work that we do, you know, sort of uh, when we speak with museums, how can we empower your work? Uh, it's about that not only awareness on the impacts of climate, but also bringing up the resilience and the good work that the pe uh, people are doing. So I see that as uh, that role. And someone was saying to me, you're kind of like a research broker. Uh, and how the research informs and makes better our communities uh, in Samoa, but also globally. Uh, it's not daunting. They're human beings. Yes, they're uh, seen as state leaders or states, but they're also just normal everyday human beings and able to ability to try and articulate the vulnerability, but also empower them into bringing out the resilience of uh, what uh, countries or communities can do is something that uh, I think is a, a great honor uh, and very grateful to be in those opportunities and spaces to um, serve both uh, international but also at the local spaces. Well, I guess that's an idea you've really got to hang on to at the moment because, of course, in recent years, the Pacific has become a space of big power rivalry. So while people like you are trying to emphasise the local issues that are important and issues like climate change, overfishing, that are really important. The big powers are, are also coming to play the chessboard. How do you juggle that? And are you worried that things like climate change are going to be sort of pushed to the side? Mm. No, I'm not. And the reason why, because part of that space when working with convening uh, meetings for chiefs of defense or convening um, 1.5 security talks between United States, New Zealand, and Australia, is I have the opportunity to talk about climate security. And that's not what I'm doing. It's what everyone is doing, is that we're bringing climate change into the security space. And it's not about climate wars or how you can fight war in a changing climate. No, it's absolutely not. 
the way that we're bringing it in is that if we are going to talk about security and especially national security, it needs to be comprehensive. It can't be just about power. You also need to take into account the future insecurity that climate impacts has on society. Military have a responsibility in that space as well. Uh, but we also look at bringing climate change dialogue and talks as a means of peace preventing. We must look at the climate impacts rather than looking at these geopolitics. And we're seeing this in the way how Pacific countries are articulating this. They see it in their bold declaration where they say uh, climate change is the greatest existential threat to the Pacific. The response from New Zealand, Australia, United States, China and Japan is that we will incorporate climate change in our security dialogue. Uh, we will look at the way that we improve the work on our humanitarian assistance and disaster awareness, how defense can be involved in this. Okay, so yes, we do have, we spent billions of dollars on nuclear uh, submarines. I wish we could spend a little bit more from that budget on our climate uh, uh, challenges, but it's also in a way where we can come through uh, in terms of uh, creating a new narrative and changing the dialogue by saying, Climate change is also a security impact, climate security. Not the way you fight wars and climate, but also how climate uh, provides insecurity, tension to communities on the local ground, but also has a direct impact on how states operate. Uh, so that's uh, another way. Um, again, uh, some may think it's opportunistic, but I think it's a way how we can uh, change the conversation as well. Australia, of course, in the last year or so, has put climate back into the forefront of its diplomacy in the Pacific, but it is still expanding some of its big fossil fuel industries. It's approving major new gas projects. Do you think this will be a source of strain in the Pacific that Australia's cutting its emissions is still a very contentious mm. problem. Yeah. Um, yes, it, I mean, the relationship that Australia and the countries in the Pacific have in, in climate change is a continuing relationship, ups, ebbs and flows. Uh, and when announcement that there is going to be more attention for uh, uh, coal or fossil fuel uh, industries or more subsidies there, it gives a lot of concern uh, for, for countries in the Pacific. Um, but what I also argue, it's not the end uh, because I see that the voices from within the Pacific uh, echo some of the concerns of Australian society here as well, that say our government should do much more here in Australia. And it's the same message that these countries are also pushing, uh, Pacific country pushing, that Australia needs to do more. Uh, it does cause a lot of strain. But it doesn't mean it disconnects or, or, or ends the relationship with um, Australia. So I've written in how it says this relationship, the Pacific, doesn't, should not give up on Australia because through its messaging, uh, encouragement, you know, uh, to government, uh, that it can do better in terms of uh, uh, its policies here. But of course, domestic policy is domestic policy. Uh, uh, and of course, in the past, it has been a source of tension diplomatically where countries in the Pacific do not, do not see eye to eye with Australia. Uh, it's a source of concern, and they actively speak out on this. But at the same time, there's a lot of great work which Australia conducts 
with the Pacific in its engagement. It's the country that provides the most uh, in adaptation funding uh, for countries in the Pacific uh, in terms of its climate change work. Although it does not see eye to eye in climate change negotiations, especially in the area of energy, uh, mitigation, uh, carbon, but it does see eye to eye in terms of its support on climate empowerment and gender. Uh, adaptation in climate finance. It's a relationship that there's parts countries don't agree on and there's parts that uh, countries agree on. I wanted to ask you briefly about a very interesting move that happened this year, pushed by Vanuatu, another small Pacific state, Mm. and that was a, a move by the General Assembly, the UN General Assembly, to ask the International Court of Justice to get involved in the climate issue. It's a complicated uh, move, but I'm wondering why did Vanuatu push it? And in simple terms, what does it potentially mean for the Pacific states? And this is why another aspect of Vanuatu or the Pacific countries uh, have a very idiosyncratic approach to international politics on climate change. This was an initiative pushed by students of a tutorial class at the University of South Pacific. These were students who were learning about environmental law and one of the subjects was the role of ICJ. And they said, oh, our governments can do this. And so this group of students wrote to all their countries to find support. But when Watu came back, said, we'll, we'll support this cause. We'll take, your, we'll, we'll take this initiative to the global stage. And so that's the, how the campaign to have a, uh, an opinion on climate change at the ICJ was pushed forth. At the International Court of Justice. Yes. yes. And so it was Vanuatu with these students, and they led this all the way. So uh, in the last two, three years with this campaign, it came to uh, success when they didn't need to go have a vote. It was approved by uh, unanimous consensus that there will be ICJ. Now, next year in January, ICJ will will hear applications on this. So currently what's happening around the Pacific and here in Australia and around the world is these same students with the government of Vanuatu calling for people to speak up, to make submissions so that um, uh, when it comes to next year in January, this could happen. But it's a perfect example of where countries, small countries from the Pacific are not only taking their vulnerabilities, but also taking the voices of local communities, groups, to the international spaces. We tend to see that our leaders or people working in foreign affairs will translate what we say and represent for Australia. But the Pacific has this unique way of not just having take the position of government, but also taking positions of people, these people's uh, voices. And one of this great story is the story on ICJ. And in theory, it could very much, if the International Court of Justice uh, finds that the big states do have responsibilities to smaller states for their actions in encouraging polluting industries, it could help the case of the smaller states for loss and damage. Absolutely. Yeah. Because what the, the ICJ would say is not necessarily for small states, but there is a direct impact of climate change on justice. Countries will then use this as uh, evidence of support for more global action for loss and damage.
Now, you've probably seen, George, that in recent times, especially young climate activists have been becoming very frustrated with climate negotiations, saying, as you say, too, they're not moving fast enough. And they're saying they are giving up negotiating for direct action. You're a teacher of diplomacy. You're a teacher who puts their faith in negotiations. What do you say to these young activists who are so frustrated, who are turning to direct action rather than stay along the path of dialogue and negotiation? Mm. I would say do both. Uh, You cannot give up on um, the current diplomacy, uh, the current negotiations. Absolutely right. It's slow. It's monotonous. It's not going, it's not taking us to, uh, to spaces. However, it's the only currently, as of today, the only mechanism that is inclusive of all voices and can create a global action. Because if we say it's going to be individuals, Australia will do something, but we'll look sideways to see whether the United States is to do something. And then it says, ah, I'm not going to do anything about it. You know, countries will have a choice. But in this current uh, system of, it's not a perfect, uh, by no means a perfect uh, platform. It's the only platform where we can sort of go for global uh, action. And of course, what will come through from these negotiations is the lowest common denominator, the least that we can do. But actually, I would say the reason why I say hold on to it is because we have seen some action over the years. It's not a great leap of action, but great action. And it's also up to these, uh, uh, the next generation to create a next generation of leaders because the leadership at the moment also are come, come from a reality which is not the reality of today. You know, they had uh, grew up in a society where they had all the resources. We have a good climate, but as we see now, it's not a great climate. So I'm also very hopeful on the next generation in the type of new international system uh, that can be better than the current UNFCCC system that has these discussions but also in a way that it's not just states, but we look at companies and pushing companies to create those actions. Because it's not the states who are the polluters, it's the companies in the states that are the polluters. And so we need a mechanism that focuses on responsibility of companies who are the polluters. And I think that's where the next generation um, can come through in pushing for that, because yes, It's very hard for states, but it's their companies that are the main producers. Mm -hmm. Now, in support of negotiations, uh, you are going to back Australia for hosting uh, the big climate talks in 2026. What do you think our chances are? Our Mm -hmm. listeners in many years to come (laughs) will know the answer to that. But uh, do you think that Australia and the Pacific, with the help of the Pacific, will be successful in this? And why do you think it's important? I really do hope it is successful. It's like the Olympic Games of the Pacific. To host gives the country the opportunity to showcase the work that it has done, but also push very strong policies in between, because to be a global leader on climate change, you need to have policies or, uh, but at the same, not just have policies, but also have 
initiatives that are in place. Uh, I think our speakers throughout the 100 uh, conversations we've had have talked about the need for greater transition, uh, faster transition. We are very slow here in Australia in all those regards in terms of uh, our uh, economy, but also our society moving into a place where uh, we are much more conscious of the way that we eat, the way that we use energy, and the way that, uh, the way that we consume, but also how much damage we are causing the environment and, and the climate. It's also very important for Pacific because Australia sets a tone in one form of knowledge system, uh, the way that uh, it moves into that transition. The transition here in Australia will inform the transition in, uh, in the Pacific because Australia is one of the hubs or the greatest hubs for many of these countries. Renewable energy practices here will inform the renewable practices in the Pacific. Cuts in fossil fuels here will inform the cuts in fossil fuels here. There is a symbiotic relationship of this, uh, but also in terms of our knowledge. The way that we can showcase how traditional knowledge in the Pacific informs policy in climate, informs the way policy or government operates. Uh, and that is also part of climate knowledge. It will also be a great way to showcase how we can do that here in Australia, bringing in our First Nations knowledge on the climate into not just our thinking about policy, but in our everyday thinking. What are these practices of thinking about our relationship with uh, nature, our relationships with uh, what we consume, or our relationship with the climate? It's a value system. Uh, it may not look like it's going to give you a 5 billion cut or advantage on the economy, but it's a value system. Uh, that's what happens in the Pacific. And I encourage that's something that we are looking at in, here in Australia. That we can show the world uh, in terms of our climate advocacy through a, a joint COP. Uh, but also uh, at the same way how the world can learn from what's happening here in Australia. So I'm hopeful that it will be a great opportunity where we show this leadership, the initiatives that we have here in Australia and the Pacific, but also showcase where we have gone wrong uh, uh, and that our decisions and, uh, you know, uh, it's not about uh, what we can do, but what we've also done because other countries are wanting to know what are some of those practices or uh, lessons which they are currently doing at the moment can also lead into that transition. Uh, so I'm very hopeful in that space. So it, um, it's not just about presenting uh, diplomatic leadership, but it's also how we transition as a society in those spaces. Mm. I wanted to ask you a final question about your own optimism, George. There was a rather bleak interview that Sir David King, the former UK chief scientist recently gave, where he talked about the fact that for generations that humans have looked back and learned from their history and the history of their civilizations over thousands of years. But now as an old man, as he looks forward just 100 years, he sees a completely unpredictable future because of climate change. Coming from the Pacific, how do you feel about that? Are you optimistic about people's ability to adapt and survive and thrive? Mm. I am. The Pacific uh, settlement 
as well as Australia, was settled 60,000 years ago with the first wave of migration. Uh, we have with the indigenous people of Australia, but as well as Papua New Guinea, Vanuatu. Second wave of migration, 3,000 years ago and 1,005 years ago. These people have lived in the most harshest environments through navigating large oceans. And over years, they've adapted. Uh, and they continue to adapt and survive in these harshest environments. In the last 200 years, climate change, I mean, the impacts of greenhouse gas emissions has, I mean, I think 200-fold the impact of what uh, is happening in, uh, in terms of the climate. But we will still adapt. I think it's what's important uh, and why I have a faith in diplomacy is that it will try and rectify and slow down this impact that's happening at the moment, but also find solutions so that humans can survive uh, in years. It's the same way that how in the Pacific they've survived uh, through that knowledge, which is that traditional knowledge. And we're starting to see uh, more and more of that coming into how we take on board um, our decisions uh, in the Pacific, but also how we create action uh, in the Pacific, bringing back that traditional knowledge, those value system. I'm hopeful that Australia will take that on board as well in terms of learning from First Nations, those value system. Uh, and that's where I see that optimism uh, uh, as it moves forward, because human beings have survived, but that diplomacy will be just one of many ways to slow down these impacts and find ways to uh, make it better. Well, thank you, George, and thank you for giving us a lot of faith mm. in the diplomatic talks and the value of keeping on talking. Please join me in a round of applause for Dr George Carter. Now, to follow the program online, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And to visit the 100 Climate Conversations exhibition or to join us for a live recording, go to 100climateconversations.com. The records of these conversations will form a new climate change archive preserved for future generations in the powerhouse collection of over 500,000 objects that tell the stories of our time. See more from the museum at Powerhouse on Twitter and at Powerhouse Museum on Instagram and Facebook. <laughs>